We're in the midst of this study of the minor prophets, and I'm looking forward to how God is going to use this among us. And so we did some of this in the first service. You can see up there it says love and mercy, and something's going to happen with that in just a little while here. Love and mercy comes right out of the book of Hosea. When did we look at Hosea last? Do you remember? Last week, we looked at the book of Hosea. This week, we're going to look at the book of Amos. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Amos. And you'll want to follow along. We're going to read some passages out of Amos here in a little while. First of all, I wanted to point out something about uh, some questions, okay? Here's the kind of question that Kelly every now and then hears. We never hear preaching about sin anymore, but we need to. Now, I don't know. Maybe that's just an indication of just how sinful you think you are. So you think you need lessons like that. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because you think that I must be really sinful, and so we need to be preaching about sin. But at any rate, we would say that we never hear preaching about sin anymore, but we need to. Or we might say something like this. We never teach about judgment and hell, but we need to. And, I, well, I think there's some merit perhaps to that. Or we might say the holy, righteous side of God that means he is judge is never taught. But sin is sin and God will judge. Now the fact is, there is some truth to these kind of statements. The fact is, is that I don't preach on judgment and hell and sin and righteousness every Sunday. That's true. I think there's been a tendency moved away from that within the churches. It's much different, I think, than it was, say, 150 years ago or something like that. And personally, I have to admit, I think that's a good thing. And I'm not saying it's a good thing that we never talk about judgment and hell and sin. I'm just saying that if I look at what the New Testament is all about and who Jesus is and what Jesus means to us, he certainly means a lot more than just the fact that I'm going to be judged. In fact, I would say that Jesus ultimately means more like love and mercy and grace I think that's really what Jesus came for. It is supposed to be good news, the gospel is, and it is good news. And so the message about Jesus is a message about grace. It's a message of reconciliation. It's a message of forgiveness. The message about Jesus is the message that our sins are washed away as white as snow and that we stand forgiven in Christ in relationship with God because of his forgiveness. And so I'm glad that that's our theological center. It needs to be. We need to have as our theological center who God is in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And so I'm glad that we focus on his steadfast love just the way we did last week in Hosea, even if we talked also about the sins of Israel. Now, nonetheless, Those who say things like, we never hear preaching about sin anymore, but we need to, or we never teach about judgment and hell anymore, but we need to, they are actually saying something right. There's a sense in which that is certainly right. And it's not that these things are never mentioned. After all, we're mentioning them today. But it may be true that they don't receive the kind of adequate attention that they deserve. And that's because... These things are in the scriptures. We're reading the minor prophets. It's pretty hard to read the minor prophets and not read about sin. Pretty hard to read the minor prophets, which are the word of God, as much as Romans or as much as Matthew. It's hard to read the word of God and not at some point come 
in contact with some statements about judgment and hell and sin and righteousness. Those are going to crop up if you read the Bible through. In fact, I would say something like this. We have to read all the parts that challenge us to live better before God. And sometimes these are passages about God's holiness and the purity to which he calls us. Sometimes they are about our sin and our need for repentance. That's just the way it is. There are scriptures like this. God has revealed himself in passages that sometimes speak this way. Now, I must admit that I have a fear about all of this. Uh, In turning to the prophet Amos and in speaking about his ministry from the book that records his prophecies, my fear is that we might be put off by the harshness of the message. My fear is not that you might decide that I or we are not a people emphasizing the grace of Christ. Like, I don't think that any of you is really going to think, you know, Kelly is talking so much about judgment here and hell and righteousness, we're never talking about grace anymore. Well, I'm not really concerned about that. I am concerned. I am concerned that you might not take Amos seriously. My fear is that we might hear his words but decide that times are so different and that the covenant we have with God under Jesus is operated so differently that we don't have to take Amos seriously. My fear is that Amos will speak to us about sinfulness and that we won't repent. My fear is that we'll continue on our merry ways afterward, convinced that these things don't really apply to us, that these things really shouldn't worry us, and that grace somehow excuses sin and laziness and selfishness and a lack of purity. And it doesn't. I'm afraid that even though we want to hear about sin and judgment and hell at some level, that when we hear such preaching, we will think it's good that so and so could hear it, but not necessarily me. We don't want to have to look in the mirror. And sometimes we think it'd be nice if the preacher wouldn't talk about hell and he wouldn't talk about judgment. And we don't have to look in the mirror. But all the while, we wouldn't be hearing the word of God and we wouldn't be hearing Amos. Now that scares me. It scares me that we won't take this seriously. But let me tell you what scares me even more. What scares me even more is that I won't hear it. What scares me most of all is that I won't listen to my own voice. My fear is that I will decide, like some of you, that I don't really need to hear Amos, that my repentance is complete, that the love of Christ and his mercy is so profound that it's okay for me to push all thoughts of purity to the side. Because after all, Jesus has set me free from sin. I'm washed white as snow. And I'm afraid that I will end up not looking in the mirror. 
because I was so busy looking at you or so busy looking at the cross where I found grace that I didn't take sin seriously. There are some people in this book who didn't take sin seriously. And I don't know what happened to Israel. Did they get lazy? Were things so good that they simply forgot to take God seriously? That's a possibility. You know, the time when Amos was preaching was about 760 B.C. And I'll tell you what, this was a time of prosperity in Israel. The northern and southern kingdoms have been divided by this point, but there was actually some really good things going on with those two nations. Israel actually had some economic prosperity present among them. And so did the southern kingdom. Things were not actually bad. Prosperity was something they were experiencing. Now, prosperity can be good. There's no doubt about that. But not if prosperity makes us lazy or selfish or causes us to mistreat others. And freedom, like what they had for a few years there, is a really good thing. But it's not good if it, chooses, if it causes us to choose not to serve God and sometimes not to do what's right. And that's what was happening in Israel. And so God calls a prophet. He calls Amos. And Amos doesn't mince words. Amos isn't the soft-spoken fellow that will soothe you. Amos speaks harsh words. He speaks words of judgment. And he speaks words that cause, in one sense, anxiety as we think about who we are before the Lord. And it's fascinating the way he does this. I want you to look with me at some passages here. Look at Amos chapter 1. Have your Bibles open. Look at Amos chapter 1. And I want you to notice verse 3. It says, This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. But that's interesting because Damascus is not Israel. That's Syria. Verse 5, I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the valley of the king who is in the valley of Avon. Uh, the king who is in the valley of Avon. And the one who beholds the scepter in Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kerr. Well, Aram's not Israel. So he's judging people on the outside. What do you think the nation of Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, what do you think they're going to be saying as they hear the prophet scathingly judge the nations outside Israel? They're going to be saying... All right, this is great. Give it to him, Amos. And then look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Well, who's Gaza? Well, that's a city on the coast. And you know who lived on the coast? The Philistines. And so this is like Amos saying, and God is going to judge the Philistines. And all the Israelites are going, yeah. You look at verse 9. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And Tyre is in Israel, and so they love it. Verse 11. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Eden, even for, Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And Edom is not Israel, and they love it. And the same thing happens in verse 13 with Ammon. The same thing happens in chapter 2, verse 1 with Moab. 
And it all looks so good. All the nations outside of Israel are being judged by the prophet and by God. And it sounds so sweet to their ears until you get to chapter 2, verse 4. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of... And what's the text say, church? Judah. What is Judah? Judah is the southern kingdom. And they too are going to endure the judgment of God. And then look down at verse 6 in chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel. Even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. And so it was all good when it was Edom and Moab and Aram and Damascus. That sounds so good when God was judging them. And then all of a sudden, Israel and Judah are not what God wants them to be. And so much of my point at this point is something like this. This is an accusation against God's people. He has totally set them up. The prophet now is saying to God's people that there is a problem. These are the ones who have been called to be his and are yet not what God wants them to be. Those whom God is judging through the prophet Amos are the very ones who have received his grace. And doesn't that sound just a little bit familiar? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. I brought you. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from, from among your young men. This is, not, is this not true? People of Israel, declares the Lord. And then look at chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Wow. It's the very people of God who at this point are not what God wants them to be and are actually receiving the judgment of God. And how bad is it? Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. These are countries outside that are really receiving God's judgment big time. Proclaim to them, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. Where's Samaria? Well, that's Israel. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord who hoard and plunder and loot in their fortresses. And the point is, God is calling to the nations and saying, you be witnesses, you ungodly, idolatrous nations, you be witnesses against Israel for what's going on among them. You stand on the heights of Israel and you look down into the valleys and you see the things that they're doing. And God calls the other nations to actually judge Israel. That's how bad it's gotten. What are the sins of Israel? Well, there's all kinds of, of accusation here. There's economic accusation, for example. There's a social justice issue within Israel. 
where the wealthy are clearly mistreating the poor. Taking from those who are poor in order to support themselves and their wealth. In chapter 5, verse 11, it says, You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. They're simply those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the court. And my point is not to indict the government, that's for sure. But it's to indict all of us, any of us, who are in positions of power and then take advantage of others, ignore others, and mistreat others who have no power and no status. And you know, this is so easy to do, sometimes without even knowing that we're doing it, without even thinking it through. You know, every time that I make sure that I get what I want, every time I make sure that I'm in the position of power, every time I keep myself in a position of status and somehow put somebody else down, I'm at that point not living any differently than Israel did. And we think this doesn't affect us, but in fact, it does. Well, after all of that social unrest, the social unjust, injustice, we may feel good because we're not directly oppressing the poor. Like you might say to yourself, you know, I, I don't do anything against the poor. I don't oppress them. I'm not stealing from anybody. I'm not keeping the, the poor down. And that is the case, I hope. But Jonathan read this passage at the beginning of our service today. It says, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. I, but let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Why does he say that? Because God's people are called to holiness. A righteousness that goes beyond. Just saying, well, I'm not directly oppressing the poor. But a righteousness that says, I will facilitate the poor. I will lift them up. I will bless them. I will love them. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You've lifted up the shrine of your king, the pedestal of your idols, the star of your God. And his point here is that there is great idolatry even while there is social injustice. And here's the way it works. So often, we think we're doing well by not oppressing the poor. When in fact, our own emphasis on our own well-being, our own emphasis on the things that we might have, that we might possess, the ways in which we become materially centered becomes an idolatry even as we're supposedly not oppressing the poor. And so I don't oppress the poor. I don't do that directly. But if my focus is on myself, if my focus is on my things, if my focus is on what I have, we can't help but in some sense take away from the kind of focus we should have on others and put that ungodly focus on. On ourselves. 
And God says, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus. Now, is he going to send us into exile? Well, no. I don't think so. I stand in Jesus. I stand forgiven. I stand blessed and pure. I stand where God wants me to be. But idolatry of all kinds is contrary to true faithfulness. And it's just as contrary as oppression of the poor. So right when we think that we're treating the poor well enough, there may be the charge laid against us that something else has become between us and God. Notably, our devotion to our own material wealth. And here's the point. Let me move on here. Pass some passages we've already looked at. Can you can you move me forward? Thank you. Keep going there until you get to the pass the line that's there right there. Those with great wealth, like so many of us in North America, and and the fact is we're all wealthy. There's just no way around the fact that we're among the upper echelons of wealth in the world. Those with great wealth, like so many of us in North America, may not directly oppress the poor and are seeking after wealth. But seeking after wealth, even when it allows us to treat the poor well, can become idolatrous. And I think we have to ask that question. Is this something that inflicts us? Afflicts us. Are we at times caught up in a devotion to things that prevents us, even when we're trying to treat the poor well, from being all that we can be. Treat the poor well and make sure your privilege does not draw your heart away from absolute devotion to the Lord. Because they have to go hand in hand. Listen to these words from Amos. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about leisure. He's talking about leisure at the expense of others. And at times, materialism can get there even when we don't want it to. And so he says this in judgment about those who don't care for the poor. He says, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass through their midst, says the Lord. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. And the point is is that we have to take the message of Amos seriously. And we have to recognize the call that God places on us to care for those who are less fortunate than we are. It's not enough for us to say, well, I'm not trying to just build mansions for myself. Not only do we not build mansions, but we have to turn our focus and our love and our attention on those who don't have what we have. And we're called to give and to bless and to serve. 
Now again, I stand in Jesus. I stand in Jesus forgiven and blessed and holy and made clean and righteous, white as snow. I believe that's absolutely true. But God's grace can never be an excuse for us lightly to take sin, especially our own. And so there needs to be reflection. There needs to be soul searching. There needs to be seriousness. And there needs to be evaluation. There needs to be honest evaluation. There needs to be an account given of how we live out before him. There can't be finger pointing. There can't be searching for the specks in the eyes of others. We can't ignore the logs on our own. But there does need to be repentance. There does need to be change. There needs to be transformation. There needs to be growth. Some of you will remember in the 1970s the name of a guy named Charles Colson, an American politician. He was part of the whole Watergate scandal. Colson was right at the upper echelons of government in the United States. He had as much control and power as anybody would want in the world. But when Nixon fell, Colson fell too. And Charles Colson ended up in prison. And he was prison, in prison for a number of months because of the things that were involved with Watergate and not uh, telling the truth to Congress and all those kinds of things. But one thing that happened was that in the midst of all that, Colson became a Christian. Gave his heart and his life to Jesus Christ. And Colson, in response, never became the same person in terms of power. He never had the same kind of authority Never entered back into politics. Never had any kind of say over anybody's political life anymore. But Colson, because he started to turn his thoughts and his mind toward ministering to those around him, including the poor, began to have an influence that he could never have had as a politician. Sometimes we think that it's our worldly influence that we crave. We want to have power and authority and status and be lifted up and have others look at us. And all the while, God is saying, I want you to remember who's beneath you. Remember those who are less fortunate. Think of them and bless them and minister to them because that's God's call on all of those who are people of privilege. What will you do, both with the seriousness with which God takes sin and your own sinfulness? That's part of Amos' message. Take sin seriously. And then he says, will you live a life of daily repentance and seeking after holiness, accepting his forgiveness, or will you not? And here's the point. Amos calls people not just sinners, but he calls people to repentance. We have a chance to be different people because especially of the blood of Jesus. And so on one hand, the message is harsh. In fact, somebody has already put some words on some cards over here. What are the words that are there, Shane? Just and pure. We're going to put that on the heart. 
The words just and pure refer to this call from Amos on our hearts to be after God's heart and to be just and pure. And repentance goes along with that. Holiness goes along with that. Yeah, Jesus saved me. He absolutely did. And I'm so grateful. Praise the Lord for what I have in Jesus Christ. But Amos calls all God's people, even those who stand in Christ, to a kind of purity and a kind of justice that he longs to be present among his people. And I hope so much that it's present in all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for the privilege of, of hearing your word. It's, it's, in one sense, it's a harsh word. It's a hard word. I, I don't like hearing from you, God, that you're going to judge me. It doesn't feel comfortable to have you think of my sin as being so abhorrent before you. I don't enjoy the idea that I have transgressed but we praise you and thank you that despite the transgression and the seriousness with which we're supposed to take sin, we at the same time thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love shown to us now, especially in the ministry and person of Jesus. And help us, Father, because of what Christ has done in our response to your love and mercy, help justice and purity to exemplify our lives. We pray these things for Jesus. Amen.